Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining us today from Colorado, Matt Blomstead, Managing Partner of Springtime Ventures. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, Santosh. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. So I'm excited to host and have a variety of topics to cover off here, but is there anything on your mind you'd love to discuss on this lovely afternoon? And I take it from our pre-recording chit-chat that it is nice and sunny where you are as it is where I am here in Tennessee. But with that, let me know what you got. If not, we could jump right into it. Yeah, no, happy watching the sunshine here before snow comes in tomorrow. <laughs> so enjoying it while I can, but no. We can go ahead and get started. Happy to chat and answer any questions you have. So, you know, I'd love to just open up with Springtime Ventures. You're investing out of your second fund. What's the genesis behind it? How did you guys start it? Where was your lifeline, your life story, Rich's lifeline, life story when you made the decision to go all in? That's a great question. And there's quite a story. I'm going to do my best to make it short as possible without missing anything. But it's really, the story about springtime is really a lot of chance. A lot of it happened by chance. And I actually was in the energy industry for almost 10 years right out of college, mostly in Houston, Texas. I spent two years in Oklahoma City between 2008 and 10. Um, and around the time I turned 30, 31, I was, had been at the private equity backed energy company I'd been at for about five years loved the people I worked with there, but I needed a change, lifestyle change. I missed being outdoors. As you know, if you spent time in Houston, it's flat, it's hot, it's muggy. There's great food and I miss the diversity and the people. Don't get me wrong, but I want to be outside. And what I did is my dog and I literally got in my Jeep. This is just for time reference. This is in 2015. Okay. I took some time off, left the business I was at in a good spot. I was in no rush. I helped them you know, transition me out of there. And then I, we really hit the road. We left Houston, went up to Colorado. We went skiing. We went ice climbing, Ure, spent some time in Utah, went up to Idaho. We only, the only reason I went to Idaho is to see the blue football field in Boise. And then we went over to Washington and Oregon. But I, the town of Bend, Oregon is actually what triggered my move out of Texas. I fell in love with the place. I, in my mind, I was going to move there. And as I finished that road trip, go down the California coast, cut over through Joshua Tree. It was a great trip. I get back to my place in Houston, and this is again late 2015. I'm like, what in the heck am I going to do in Bend, Oregon? You know, um, number one, I knew nobody there, didn't have family there. And I think the bigger thing is at some point I was going to run out of money that I'd saved. And so I always say I made it halfway there. We did end up leaving Houston and we ended up moving to Boulder, Colorado. I was familiar with Boulder from people who I'd grown up with and gone to see you and visited them. And also being close to Denver, if I needed to jump back into the energy industry, I could easily do so from there. So that's when I made the move. And by the time I got up there, late 2015, early 2016, 
I was starting to get antsy because again, I was going to run out of money and I miss people. I miss deal making. And what happened next is where all the chance comes in. I literally somewhat randomly met a couple of folks in the startup ecosystem in Boulder and both entrepreneurs, a man and a woman, different businesses, they were raising capital. And I um, met a lot of people kind of spider, spider webbed from those two individuals. They introduced me to a ton of other founders, folks running, you know, tech stars. I did meet Brad Feld early on uh, briefly, a foundry group. And really over the next few months going into 2016, you know, the more people I met, all these founders and entrepreneurs, the more I realized there was a lack of seed capital in Colorado at the time. It's very different today. There's a lot of other great funds here that we work and collaborate with a lot. But back then, you know, Natty was still with Techstars. He wasn't with Matchstick. Range VC was not around yet. Hannah Gray was not around yet. South Street was not around yet. And so the more people I met with, you know, I was having fun. I was learning about all these industries that I just read about in Bloomberg previously, right? And the passion that entrepreneurs have is contagious. And so over the next few months, I, and by the way, let me say something that's very important here. I was really lucky to meet Rich Malloy and Rick Patch very early on in this journey, just through mutual friends. And I could not have done it without him. But, you know, by mid 2016, after all these people, I, this light bulb kind of went off in my head and the, the light bulb was, okay, I'm starting to become really convicted that there's a need and an opportunity for a Colorado, you know, based seed fund. And I thought if we had, I had the right partners with the track record that we could raise capital from a lot of folks in the energy industry who I'd done business with, specifically private equity investors, bankers, lawyers, and entrepreneurs. So that was the idea. As you know, raising money, raising a first time fund, especially as I you know, had no experience doing any of that, even with my partners, you know, Rick, who had done this before, it was still hard. And we really you kind of spent a lot of time in the community talking to people, built that deck out and spent all of 2017 raising that first fund. And we barely, I mean, we barely got it done. That first close a few days before Christmas of 2017 was small. I mean, we wanted to get to 8 million and we weren't anywhere close to there, but we closed the fund, had the first close of the fund, started investing in January, 2018. And, you know, fast forward, that's kind of the genesis. From there, we invested in 35 companies over about a four-year period, moved on to fund two, a lot of other things happened, but that's the origin story. And kind of, so with that, you and the team now, fast forward 2021, 22, now 23, have really leaned into supply chain. I'd be curious, kind of what made you all decide to make it one of your key focals amongst, I think you have healthcare, if I recall as well, yeah, uh, and, yeah. and, and well, we did we, as another sector. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what happened. It, and this is part of the sto- the origin too. So as we started investing, remember we started that first year in 2018 when we were investing in mostly Colorado-based co- companies. As I started spending more time in Austin and other cities, all of us building relationships with firms around the country, uh, we started we expanded our horizons. I'd say right. We started investing outside of Colorado, and what we started to notice was. We would we started gravitating towards opportunities in certain industries. And a big reason for that was there were people, again, the majority of our OP base back then was it came from out of the energy industry, but we also had people 
who came out of healthcare, who came out of logistics and supply chain, or who had a lot of experience in payments, you know, within fintech. And so what we found was, number one, we were, there was like, it was so much easier for us to evaluate opportunities in those sectors. Number two, or maybe number two should be number one is like, we saw even pre-COVID just a ton of opportunities for digitization and changes and improvements within these industries, right? They've been slower to adopt in many ways than others. And then the other thing is we had, because the people in our network, some who are in our LP base, we had like a clear value prop, like how we could help after we invested. And so eventually over a course of a few years, we're like, why don't we just make this our focus? It's making us better. We're able to make quicker decisions and founders really appreciate that. We're really educating ourselves in these industries and and then, so when we went out to raise fund two, Santosh, we were like, how do we augment the team and set the team up to be even better to execute within these industries? And within logistics and supply chain specifically, that included bringing on two new operating partners. One is Rick Jones in Austin, who was, you know, formerly the CEO of LSO or Lone Star Overnight. And previous to that, you know, had 22 years of experience at UPS. And then we also brought on Jesse Dixon here in Denver, who spent quite a bit of time at walmart.com in the early days. And then also worked for a couple of fast growing startups like Havenly here in Denver. So she has a lot of supply chain and marketplace experience. So with that, well, we took everything we learned in fund one and just really, you know, called it out to our investors, to our, you know, other funds like you all that we like to invest with. And it's, like I said, I couldn't be happier with how things have gone. So that's kind of that's kind of where we landed. We continue to build relationships with key industry executives and investors in these industries, and it just we feel like it continues to make us better and makes our portfolio companies better because we're better suited to help them at the end of the day. So you know, as supply chains over the last year or so have reverted back to some sense of normalcy, and that might be relative depending on who you speak to and where they are in the broader supply chain. Are there any specific areas that are exciting to you, exciting to the team? Yeah, I think that for within supply chain specifically, and you can look at our portfolio to see some of these examples like Packurate, like Blue Cargo, which is kind of a first mile, what I would call a first mile supply chain visibility play. You know, what we see, there, there's macro trends that are bringing things back here, right? I mean, especially last week with the China, Chinese balloon. Um, we're, at least our view is that we're going to see reshoring and it's already happening or onshoring of a lot of, uh, a lot of manufacturing. And, and obviously with that supply chain coming back, moving, moving back closer to home. And so you know, this is kind of a fun, fun discussion and fun debate because we're having this right now internally about what subsectors within supply chain and logistics that we want to focus on or where we think that there's going to be opportunity to solve really large problems over the next five to 10 years. And so I don't have, I don't have, you know, firm answers or beliefs just because, you know, we're doing, we're currently doing that work and talking to people like yourself but and then the other thing is let me slow down i'm rambling a little bit but the other thing is with it is 
there are certainly problems. Like we talk about this with it, like supply chain visibility within certain verticals, for instance. It's really hard because, you know, with globalization, there are so many components. Like the iPhone, I think, has components that come from 43 different com- countries. I mean, trying to really provide true visibility into something like that's really hard. So if things do come back, if things come back, we're unsure, like where do they come from? Like where, how can we, you know, who can help companies, manufacturers streamline their supply chain? Is this all these macro trends kind of unfold, if that makes sense? So again, I'm talking more at a high level, but, you know, I think anything that helps streamline supply chain, increases visibility. Those are two areas that we're, you know, we're currently looking at. And also, like, I like to use the Packard example, and that's more, I don't know if you want to call that supply chain logistics or a mix, but, you know, anything that can provide a really strong ROI for their customer, save them money that's supply chain related, like, that's for us, that's intriguing, if that makes sense. Yeah, certainly. And you mentioned both Packard and Blue Cargo as as recent investments. Let's jump a little more into Packurate here, right? What they're actually okay. building around kind of packaging intelligence. What got you excited by it? Why'd you ultimately yeah. invest? Like, get us into yes. the investment memo, if you would. <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you why. The, I, the, the well, let me tell you about the thing that spoke the loudest to us during diligence. Obviously, it, it, when we're investing at this stage, as you know, we're investing in people. So we love James, we love Pat and the team. But as far as the business is concerned, there were a couple of calls that I had. One was with Crate and Barrels, VP of Supply Chain. And I don't know, and it wasn't just him. It was also, there were also a couple other calls I did. I don't know that I'd ever done diligence calls that seemed so genuine and excited and enthusiastic about a product. It was a combination. Their excitement was around a few things. For them, for Crate and Barrel in this one distribution center that they had implemented Packurate, obviously, number one is the ROI. They estimated that over a 12-month period, they were saving them upwards of $2 million. And just from that facility, what went into that was, I think the second that they went live, I think at the time in that warehouse and that facility, they were holding about 81 different corrugated you know, box types. And they were immediately able to cut that down to 28. And that alone allowed them to rejig their packing lines and streamline their whole operation within that facility. The ROI story and the increase that, you know, which a lot of things go into that, but the efficiencies that, that the software provides, it ended up saving like on labor costs because of the way they rejig the supply, the packing lines. It did so much, so many things for them. And the enthusiasm for him and telling us that, hey, we want to expand this nationally was a really strong and exciting signal for us. So I think that's, I like to use that crate and barrel example as one, as just one thing. But the feedback we got was pretty consistent from other customers we spoke with. Have always given them, you know, an A plus on the product and continue to kind of grade them that way. I mean, there's obviously challenges with any business. Anytime that you're asking somebody to to uh, to come in and 
onboard and implement something new, there's challenges. But Packer seems to have a playbook in place to to help mitigate that as as best as possible. And so we were excited. Talk to me about Blue Cargo. You kind of mentioned that it's kind of in this first mile of supply chain. Give us some context. Yeah, so Blue Cargo is, um, you know, their core product with, they're serving trucking companies, 3PLs at ports, right? Coastal ports, seaports. Starting with, they started with LA and Long Beach. Now they're live in New York and New Jersey with plans for pretty rapid expansion after their last round. Um, I'll tell you the things that excited me about Blue Cargo versus Packurate. Some are similar, some are different. I think that you still had, you know, we did quite a few customer references on that one. And so those were extremely strong too. I mean, all of them were basically begging them to, to expand to other ports, Seattle, New York, Savannah, Houston, Charleston, as soon as possible. So, you know, those are strong signals. What excited me about that one wasn't, you know, one of the key things was actually not so much about what they were doing for the supply chain. It was just how capital efficient, you know, they were. It was how much dollars they've raised to revenue produce. Like that's, it was one of the, it's one of the best metrics we've ever seen. Mm. So they've been able to do it. They've been able to scale so far, this really high margin, 90% plus, you know, SaaS business with really happy customers that are willing to travel with them to other locations. And that really got us excited. I mean, the problem they're solving for, you know, just one of them for, for drop off and pickup of containers has been alleviated somewhat just with less congestion at, in, in LA Long Beach with his COVID, the kind of the COVID impact is dissipated a little bit, but the problem's still real, you know, pre post COVID they're still solving, they're still solving that problem for their customers. And it's a much more efficient way than the alternative, which is multiple screens, up, spreadsheets, phone calls. So it's a, to me, that's, it's kind of, it's one of those paper. I don't know if it was fully paper-based, but it is a further digitization play Yeah, compared to the current process. So I'm going to shift gears here and chat a bit about business building and being a seed investor. I'd be curious, kind of what type of advice and perspective are you offering founders on managing burn after they've closed their seed round? We're in a very different environment now than we were perhaps even 12 months ago in early 22. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic question because it's so important. And so one of the things you know that, that we're looking closely at when we make an investment decision, and we're walking through this with the founders is, I always laugh at the pre-seed and seed stage a lot of times just because financial forecasting models, we know they're probably going to be wrong, but it's a very important exercise for us because you want to be on the same page as the founders and the teams on what it's going to take to grow, the assumptions, you know, the levers they're going to have to push and pull to do so. And obviously, most importantly, kind of where you're going, I think is, you know, are they going to hit the metrics they need to hit in order to raise additional funding, you know, in, in 18 months? In 24, I like even better than 18 right now. And so we got through that exercise and and I'd say that's a big, it's a big point of discussion before we invest. And, you know, we're in the process in late stage diligence with one company right now that, you know, we're doing that with, and I have a big question about it. And so, you know, we're taking 
what we're hearing from later stage investors, from Series A and Series B investors, and what they want to see, you know, with this type of business specifically, what, you know, when I talk to other investor friends that invest at later stages, I'm saying, hey, here's this, here's a business that we're considering investing in, or we're already invested in, it could be an existing portfolio company. I'm saying, what for this business, you know, would you like to see, do you want to see in order to potentially fund them? And we'll, we'll take that back and we'll, you know, go through that with the founders as well. So that, you know, Obviously, they're doing their own work on that as uh, too, not just us. But um, we just want to be make sure that they're well capitalized and able to hit the numbers and metrics that they need to in order to raise, you know, another round. So they they don't run out of money. Do not run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number one. What's the most common mistake over the years you've seen a founder make at the seed stage? You know, mistake. I don't know that I have enough experience. You know, we're at, let's see. So we're 45, 46 portfolio companies in, you know, some have shuttered. A lot of them, you know, some of them have done really well. A lot of them are, you know, doing well. And and so I don't know that I have a consistent like theme of a mistake that we've seen because, you know, we're investing in over a few industries. These companies have different business models. You know, I'll tell you, I, I would like to share a learning that I had that I think is important. And I, I we've seen it at least once, maybe twice. So maybe it could probably be the answer to your question. But yeah, I treat this as a learning. And what it was, was there was a deal. One of the first investments we made was in a, a SaaS business serving the automotive space. And we were really excited about it because they landed a huge enterprise customer. Okay. And we thought that was great. Like that actually, because that deal was done, that's what got us excited enough to invest in the opportunity. In hindsight, that hamstrung them and ended up probably leading to the demise of the business, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It took a long time. But what happened with the enterprise, and you know, we're not enterprise experts by any means, right? Like, you know, I'd say that most of our investments are serving SMBs or serve some enterprise, but it's, they're not enterprise solely focused on enterprise. But what happened was just feature creep. I mean, they wanted this, they wanted that. And for a seed stage company that have limited resources, they were not able to meet timelines, the needs. And really what it did is it just really killed their ability to sell to other customers because all their resources were taken by this one large enterprise. And eventually that led to unhappiness on both sides. That deal just completely it, it took way too long for that thing to fall apart, unfortunately. And, you know, like I said, it probably took three or four years before, you know, it all came to a head and they parted ways. And then, you know, unfortunately for a seed stage company, they put them in a really tough spot. So I, I always think like diversity of revenue, diversity of your customer base is important. And we definitely caution, caution uh, our companies on that. So kind of related to some of what we discussed previously, but I'd be curious, like what does a killer team mean for you and your team at springtime? Does that mean you have to be a team or solo founders? Cool. Do you have to have kind of technical competency, but kind of what is the, the people side of the equation at seed mean yeah. when you invest? Yeah. 
I'd say that overall, there are, there's always exceptions in venture because you invest in quite a few different opportunities. But overall, when we've seen a well-rounded team, meaning they have different skill sets that are very complementary to each other and that are fully bought in really early on, that's usually been a very good sign for us. Not always. There's all I could point to one or one you probably know. Like there's some out there that like it doesn't, it, you know, this didn't work out. But overall, it's a team that's so bought in on this vision. You know, I mean, I almost want to use like Viho as the example here because even though it was mostly as the co-founders, it was mostly Fred and Itamar at the time. They did have a strong core team, and. One of the things we've seen also with that Ito might have been the first one to do this, but we've seen the best founders be able to talk and explain a vision at a very high level, like you know how things are today, and then paint a future of, or a vision of the future three, five, ten years out. You know when the company is super early, okay, and then also though go into the weeds on what it takes to get there with data. Right. I mean, I think I think Ita had like 120 slides. Any question we asked him, he had an answer. Now, I some of the answers might be debatable that he had, but it, there was data to back it up. And so, I think it, it, for us, it's been a combination. We try to quantify this as much as we can, Santosh, and it's really hard. You know, you when you're evaluating teams, you want to put as much science behind it as you can, but there's always some art, right? Like that's harder. But for us, it's been well-rounded teams. You know, it's not been typically a solo founder. It's been well-rounded teams that are bought into this vision of a future that's very different as it is today. And they're able to explain exactly how they're going to get there. Knowing that there will be bumps in the road and they'll have to shift and pivot here and there to make it happen as they learn. But that's for us, that's been a big thing. Well-rounded, complementary skill sets because you're all wearing a lot of hats. And you've got to be, you've got to be fully bought in to make something go big and, you know, fast. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more on kind of the well-rounded complementary skills, which generally disposes us to invest in teams. But even when we do have kind of the solo founder, we're looking for some of what you described, like being able to attract a, a core around you, because it also helps us recognize that you understand your strengths and your weaknesses and you can appropriately kind of cover off your bases as you think about team building so to speak 100% 100% I we're, no we're I think you and I talk about this quite a bit and like that's I 100% you know agree with you so there. would that matter I'm going to go through some rapid fire these are really kind of 10 seconds. What's top of mind? Um, I'd love to kind of start off with the layoffs hitting venture-backed supply chain companies, Flexport, Convoy, you name it. Yeah, I think, you know, listen, a lot of great companies, whether it's, you know, Convoy or Flexport, it could be any industry, but a lot of great companies simply, you know, in a zero interest rate environment, they hired too fast. And they had crazy growth, but also growing pains. And so I think it's natural. I think there's kind of two different, uh, two different paths here. Like some companies don't really, don't really have a business 
and even though they raise a ton of money, like they're in trouble. And there's a, the businesses that we're kind of talking about here that actually have really strong core businesses and maybe just hired too fast. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. But um, and so I don't get when I see a company has laid off 10 or 20 percent of their workforce. It's very unfortunate. Listen, I don't wish that on anyone. And yes, you can argue that they should have been more prudent and known that this time of free money wasn't going to last forever. But I think it's not. It's important to realize that there are really strong businesses behind you know some of these. And just because they're laying off, they're actually doing the most prudent thing for the business. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, you're an early Vejo investor. What do you think the future of Last Mile Delivery is? Well, I hope it's I hope it's them, right? Their model. <laughs> I will tell you, I love it. I, he invited some of his investors, early investors, to a, an all-hands meeting at their warehouse in Denver about three weeks ago. And I was able to see the excitement and the energy. You know, Because the grounds people, like the people working in the warehouses, executives flew in from around the country. I got to meet a lot of them. And the energy from, uh, from the execs down to people working in the warehouses was all, you could see really clear alignment on what they're trying to build and how they're doing it. And it was really exciting for me. So, you know, in the age of Amazon, people want, you know, their goods fast. They want to know where they want flexibility on when they're getting it, how to return it. And I think VO is playing, doing their best to play a strong role in making that a reality. Last but not least, what's your favorite thing to do when you're not a VC? Be outside. And that means, I mean, I like to hike. I like to ski. I like to play tennis. Any, anything outside on a nice day like today, and um, you're probably going to see a smile on my face. So Awesome. Well, I... That's why I enjoyed coming to Chattanooga. That's right. Plenty of good hikes around that's there. That's right. It was awesome. That's right. We, we certainly share that in common. And with that, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time, sharing your story, the springtime story, and how you all are thinking about seed state supply chain. And with that excited to see your continued success i sure hope so it's a pleasure it's been such a pleasure to get to know you guys i can't thank you enough for having me on and and also look forward to continuing to work to solve some of these big problems over the next five to ten absolutely man cheers cheers thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked and be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.